Welcome to Story Search from Special Collections, a podcast series exploring stories based on, inspired by, or connected to material artifacts, hosted by Andrea Lemoyne, me, and my coworker Joe Shemtov. Our first season will be dedicated to artifacts kept at the Free Library of Philadelphia. Thank you so much, Andrea. Yeah, Appreciate Joe. it. Uh, I'd like to uh, welcome everybody today to the show. Uh, assistant Imam uh, Hudayfa Abdulhai and Sheikh Saeed Abdulhadi. Welcome. It's an honor to have you. Uh, and also my coworker Shahada Abdul Rashid, uh, who's very much, uh, uh, who will be a moderator and an interviewed guest today. So it's, uh, it's an honor to be working with all of you uh, today. The program that we're doing now is in connection to uh, something that we call Manuscripts of the Muslim World. It's a project, and it consists of a number, a bunch of programs that are happening at the Free Library of Philadelphia. Uh, and it, 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 it is inspired by the Rare Book Department's collection of uh, historic, handwritten books from the Islamic world. And we have a lot of funding agencies that have already financially supported the library's work. And that uh, work is uh, includes describing and publishing all the manuscripts online so that people can see them. Uh, and also restoring them. So some of them are not in great condition. They need to be restored. So we're using that money to restore these, these very, very special uh, holy books. Uh, and they're they're damaged. Uh, they need care. So some of the money that we have is going to that. And then finally, uh, next spring, uh, we're going to be hosting a number of community programming. Uh, we're going to be engaging the Islamic community. We're going to have language classes. We're going to have a travel traveling exhibition, and we're having what we're doing right now. That's part of what we're trying to do. So. Uh, I hope that this podcast that we're doing now will be just one baby step, one small step in helping to forge a relationship with all Philadelphians who feel connected to the Islamic culture, the Islamic heritage. So uh, thank you for, uh, for, for being part of this program. Um, now it's my pleasure to introduce to you Shahada Abdul Rashid, and she is a community initiative specialist, uh, which me- means that she works with the community uh, uh, for the Free Library of Philadelphia. And not too long ago, uh, we worked together on a program that we called Quarantine. And it included uh, Assistant Imam uh, Hudefa Abdulhai, who gave a, an incredible lecture, and also uh, Abdullah ibn Hanif, uh, who's a great teenager who recited from the Quran. So uh, this is this this program now is in in the spirit and the tradition of the one that we that we had. So hi Shada. Hello there. Hi everyone. Um, so I am a community initiative specialist with the Free Library of Philadelphia, as Joe just told us about a minute ago. 
And uh, my connection with the project is that I am a member of the Muslim indigenous community here in Philadelphia. And um, Joe and I have been working together for the outreach to the community. And because I am a free library worker and outreach worker, as well as a member of the community, it's been my role to help. Um, it's been my role and my pleasure, actually, to help kind of build the bridge and help bring this programming to the Islamic community in Philadelphia. So today we have, we'll be interviewing Assistant Imam Hudayfa Abdulhai and Sheikh Saeed Abdulhadi. They are both um, Muslims in the Philadelphia community, Muslim leaders actually in the Philadelphia community. And they have come today and they will be able to share um, things and stories and antidotes about their life that they've experienced. Today we'll be speaking about what it's like to be an indigenous Muslim in Philadelphia. So I will ask questions to both of them, um, some questions specifically to one person and then have the other person follow up. But we can't wait to hear all about um, the history and the story of Islam in Philadelphia. So let's see. We can get started with a few questions about generally. Um, tell us about your life in regards to um, before you accepted Islam as your religion and your way of life. And we'll start with Sheikh Saeed. Well, good afternoon. Um, uh, as we discuss. I guess maybe uh, my life before Islam was, I was raised in a, uh, um, a religious home. That is to say that my mother and father were both members of the Protestant um, uh, religion, which really not really a Protestant religion, but they were part of Protestantism under the Church of God in Christ. And my father was a, a, a preacher in that church. In fact, he was one of the elders. I think he was a deacon at one point. And we were raised, I'm being the youngest, by the way, we were raised in an atmosphere where there was no smoking in the house, no drinking in the house, no car playing in the house, church every Sunday, choir every Tuesday, uh, Bible study every Wednesday, while we couldn't even play checkers on Sunday in my house. So I was raised in, not strict, but I was raised in a religious kind of an atmosphere with my parents. By the time I was 15, it had, it had worn on me to such a degree that I myself became a minister, a preacher, if you will. And um, I stayed that way uh, for uh, a couple of years, I guess, by, you know, by the time I was 17 years old. Then I went into the military. And in the military, I uh, kind of like dropped that aspect. And I found myself, I was in the United States Navy, if anyone knows what that implies, you know. And... Um, when I returned home uh, from the Navy, I had an older brother. Uh, my oldest brother had been was a Muslim for years. He's 10 years older than me. When I was like about 9 or 10, I remember him taking me around uh, to the Muslim community at 55th and Gerard. They had a newspaper that was selling. They had a one-column one article named uh, Muhammad Speaks. And what they were doing, they were showing... Uh, the community that there was something other than Christianity for black folk. 
because this was a black paper out of Pittsburgh called Pittsburgh Curia. Um, then by the time, like I said, when I came out of um, the service, I was going back and forth to visit him. He lived in New York. And now he's really telling me about, you know, hey, man, you know, you, you, know, you really got to kind of get away from that mom and pop thing and, you know, get with the truth, you know. So he convinced me to the point that I finally took my Shahada in 1967. And since then, by law's permission, I've been, as some people say, uh, on the hawk, you know. So basically, I didn't have a whole lot of uh, what we call dunya in me, except for those years of uh, the military, you know. As I said, I was really raised with a, a strict uh, religious kind of background. In fact, I'm going to stop this. I have to be brief. My father told us, he said, listen. First, there's God. Then there's you. There's heaven and hell, and you have to die. So the thing is, believe God. Do good. So when you die, you can go to heaven and not hell. Now, there are five points which my brother and I concluded my father was guiding us to the five principles of Islam. Thank you. Um, and you, you mentioned, uh, can you just explain very briefly, you mentioned taking your shahada, and you also talked about the dunya. Can you define those words just for our listeners who may not know what they mean? Taking shahada is bearing witness openly that there is no God save Allah alone, who has no partners, and testifying openly uh, that Muhammad ibn Abdullah uh, is the last messenger and prophet of God Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God Almighty. The word dunya, um, excuse me, dunya is other than Islam. Dunya is really world. But it's not like the whole world is world. But dunya in the usage of Islam is like unbelief and not being involved in submission to Allah. It's more like uh, rejecting Allah. Uh, so that word dunya is, is used. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Imam Hudayfa, can you tell us a little bit about your life before you accepted Islam as your religion and way of life? Yes. Uh, well, I was born in the Northeast, Frankfurt, uh, part of Philadelphia, the Frankfurt neighborhood. And uh, my life was basically the regular, what you might say, Afro-American young man life. Okay. Uh, again, too, like Sheikh Saeed, I was raised in the church. My grandmother was a founder of the church that I went to. My mother died uh, when she died in that church, which is the Second Baptist Church of Frankfurt. She was the oldest living member when she passed. Okay. And I was in that church for a long time until, like everybody else, you know, I uh, seen other things that I wanted to do. And B, so I didn't go have to go to, when you know, when you get a certain age, your parents really, uh, I don't know whether to say they, they don't have control over you, or I could say maybe I was uncontrollable. So, you know, I did my own thing. But while I was in the church, I did participate. I was a vice president of the junior usher board, and, um, you know, and I had the regular life. You know, I went to school, you know, uh, I went to school and I didn't go to school, okay? Uh, you know, like I said, the average, 
Afro-American male lifestyle during the 60s. I'm a product of the 60s. So in the 60s was turbulent time. So everything that was going on in the 60s, you could say I experienced. I got married at a young age, at 18. And, you know, I was trying to live the life of a married man. And then, of course, Islam came along. I'm making it short. And uh, I became Muslim. As a matter of fact, I became Muslim at the same masjid that Sheikh Shaheed was at. He was already there when I got there. So uh, I think I became Muslim in 1975. Okay. And, you know, the rest is basically history. And and what masjid was that? Masjid Asherhood on 52nd Street at that time. And then from there, I went from Masjid Asherhood to the International Muslim Brotherhood, which, uh, and Sheikh Saeed can correct me, is probably the oldest indigenous masjid in the city. Actually, this, it's, for Muslims, it's a landmark. For the indigenous Muslim community of Philadelphia, it's like a landmark. I went there, and then uh, as I started finding out about more masjids, well, it was only three in the city at that time. I correct, Saeed? Yes, you're correct, my brother. There was there was Abu Bakr in mm-hmm. North Philadelphia, the Albanian Mosque, second in Garad, mm-hmm. and then that's from Brotherhood. Yes, right. Well, Ashurhood too, because I had took my shahat. Well, Ashurhood was, was came about about seventy four. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I did, yeah. Okay. But anyway, like I said, actually, I didn't know about the Albanian Mosque. I keep leaving them out, but I, I forgot about them. And I, I didn't know about them till maybe a year after I became Muslim. But from the International Muslim Brotherhood, I started attending also the uh, original, one of the original buildings that the Masjid Mujahideen uh, name was attached to. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. And the 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 landmark Masjid that you talk about, International Brotherhood, is it still here today? Yes, the International Muslim Brotherhood is still here today, and actually what it is called now is the Kuba Institute of Arabic and Islamic Studies, okay? Uh, the International Muslim Brotherhood, which Sheikh Saeed was, was there before me also. I, I want everybody to know he's my elder. <laughs> so, so, you know, he can probably answer a lot more questions about the International Muslim Brotherhood before me, but they were... Uh, the International Muslim Brotherhood became the Kuba Institute when uh, the sons of the imam that was there before uh, became the leaders of that particular community. And they have now they, they have a full credited Islamic school there. But uh, unbeknownst to a lot of people is that the Kuba Institute for Arabic and Islamic Studies always existed but it existed in name only under the, uh, uh, what do you call that? The bylaws, you know, like when the, when a, when a corporation comes together, incorporation, uh, the, 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 the name of the religious aspect of the place was the, the name of the corporation. It was International Muslim Brotherhood. And the Kuba school was always the, the considered the, educational arm of that corporation. Well, actually, Hudefi, it was the Kuba School of Islamic Studies in the beginning when it first got chartered in 1968. 
Chartered. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, they got Chartered in 68 as the, as the Cuba School of Islamic Studies. Okay. And when Nasser Ahmed passed and uh, Nafi's children wound up going overseas and becoming educated, then the name was International Muslim Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And they kept Cuba as the, 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 the arm, the, the school arm. So that now is just called the Cuba Institute of Islamic Studies. You know? right. mm-hmm. Alhamdulillah. Thank you for mm-hmm. that history. Um, so our, our next question that we have here, um, and we can start with Imam Hudaysa since you were already speaking. Um, and I'll also ask Sheikh Saeed, is that it seems like uh, felt like Islam wasn't very prevalent in the city at the, at the time when you guys both converted. Um, so what made you come to Islam? It, it wasn't like both of you spoke about the fact that you were involved in the church. So Christianity was the, I guess, more mainstream uh, religion on the forefront. So how did you come to accept Islam in an environment where it wasn't prevalent? And there weren't many Muslims around. Okay, well, uh, I could answer that on my on my part. Okay, actually, I started when I first moved to the University of Pennsylvania neighborhood. I lived I lived basically almost on campus down there, and uh, I started meeting Muslims. Okay, from I started meeting people all from all around the world that were quote-unquote, Muslims, especially African. And then one of my best friends till today from 1971, the man who actually took me to the masjid, Gulf Abdul Rashid, who was also a friend of Sheikh Saeed, he knew him before me, but we just didn't know each other at that time. Okay, we became good friends. And um, one of the things that took me, that made open my eyes to Islam, of course, was the, I read the book, uh, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. A lot of people my age, anyway, came through, is- their eyes were opened to Islam by reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, believe it or not. Okay. Then, um, once you read that, and then you started searching for more, and being a product of the 60s, which I would say was a rebellious era, okay, in America, so you were always looking for something. You had all kinds of groups that were, Looking like today, Black Lives Matter, you had this, you had that. So you had all types of groups who were actually uh, looking for the rights of the indigenous person, the black person, you know, the Afro-Americans. So after going through all that, I would call it the black experience, okay? And uh, not that Islam is only for black people. I started getting interested in Islam, and I could say by the time 1975 came around, I was ready for something different in my life, and I chose Islam, and basically that's how I became Muslim. I actually one day, uh, brother said, "You want to you want to go to the masjid with me?" And I said, "Sure, why not?" And I went to the masjid, and uh, um, they asked me, you know, after they they talked to me. Talk to me, talk to me. Uh, another friend of Sheikh Saeed. Uh, so I always have to refer back to Sheikh Saeed because he was already on the set and he knew all these people. Brother by the name of Farouk. Who was his last name, Saeed? Kabir, Abdul Kabir. Yeah, Farouk Abdul Kabir actually gave me Shahada on that day and I became Muslim. Wonderful. 
Um, so you said Sheikh Saeed is your elder, and you're actually well, both of you are my elders. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> so we. <laughs> got, so keep reminding us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I feel blessed to have you. So yes, yes. from the mountaintop, how about that? Okay. Um, As a matter of fact, let me let me let me, if I may, add into that is that when I moved after I took Shahada. I moved to 52nd and Chester. And guess who lived on the second floor? Who? Your mom and your brothers oh. and sisters. Yeah, they lived underneath me at that apartment. <laughs> yeah, okay. So very close connection, everybody. Yes, thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Um, Sheikh Saeed, uh, I'll, I'll repeat the question again. Uh, what, what made you accept Islam in a city and environment where it wasn't, prevalent there weren't very many muslims around and your your account will be very different than uh imam hudayfa because you have been muslim since what year uh 1967 by law's permission okay alhamdulillah okay if i might say uh as i as i as i said uh i had a brother that was 10 years my senior and um i remember i remember I guess he must have been about maybe 14, 15. He's 10 years my senior. But I remember when he used to use an eyebrow pencil of my father's. It was called Maybelline. My father used it on his mustache. And he used to take this Maybelline and paint a mustache on his lip. And then he would paint a goatee on his chin. And then he would tie a towel around his head as a turban. And he would have everybody running around the neighborhood doing what we do when we pray. Bowing down to him, bowing, bowing, bowing. You know what I mean? You know, and it was, it was calling, you know, your royal, you know. So that, and at nine years old, like I said, by the time I was like nine, I was going around with him. I was meeting Muslims, not knowing I'm meeting Muslims. I'm meeting people like my brother, so to speak, you know. And then when I went into the military, after going through the changes of preaching and all that, I went to the military. When I was in the military, I found myself in uh, Morocco, I found myself in Istanbul, Turkey, I found myself in, in, in Spain, and it was in Spain. I was in Palma de Mallorca, Spain, when I met these two uh, or three Europeans that were vacationing in Spain, young people that were vacationing in Spain. And one of the people, the brother, he was a young man, he wrote a little doodle on a napkin. We went, to, we went to a bar, and he wrote a doodle, so I said, on a napkin. I took that doodle, and I said, well, I'm going to have this as a memory. I took it home with me. When I became a Muslim, that was 1963, 1964, when I became a Muslim, and I began to uh, live my life as a Muslim, I was moving my belongings from one house to another. So I came across my scrapbook, and I opened it. There was this doodle. But it wasn't a doodle. He had written in Arabic, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So that was with me. Being in Morocco was with me. And then an incident occurred in my life where my uh, my brothers, my mother said that uh, I was being uh, I was being uh, I was being chastised, you know, because I stopped preaching, you know. And uh, my brother said, "No, nah, man, that ain't the case." The case is, you just need to be a Muslim. So now, 
All I know is how I've lived to those years of reading the newspaper, being in Morocco and whatnot. You know, so I said, well, like you? And he said, yes. And uh, I was at his home in New York when uh, the brother that became what became known as the Darslam Movement. His name was Jab Mahmoud. He talked to me, him and my brother talked to me, and they explained to me the five pillars and the principles. And they even explained to me something that you don't hear too much mentioned amongst new shahadists, and that is a description of the belief in brief, you know. And uh, after they explained it to me, hey, I took my brother's word, you know, and by Allah's permission, because Allah guides to Islam, by Allah's permission, I submitted and I took shahada. I bore witness openly that there is no God but Allah. Muhammad is his messenger, you know. And since then, well, please in my with Allah as my Lord, Muhammad as my prophet, and Islam as my religion. Alhamdulillah. Thank you. Um, in, in your opinion, has the Philadelphia community been more accepting of Islam since the time when you embraced it? Well, I think so, and the reason I think that is because uh, what is what what happened, what I think happened, is that um, the the convert to Islam, especially the Black American convert to Islam, he had to deal with his heart, his faith, and his belief that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala was God Almighty, because at the time. What was happening was there was this um, uh, uh, pseudo-religious atmosphere uh, for black people uh, from the nation of Islam, which made it sound like if you were black, you belonged to the nation of Islam, which in actuality was not really the case. So a term was coined orthodox. So the orthodox Muslim, I think that what we had was a more pro-Islam attitude as opposed to an anti-America attitude, you know. And at the time, like you said, it wasn't a whole lot of people, but the few of us that were like that, we literally, first of all, we kept the mosque open 24 hours a day. That made it possible to worship the law around clock. When the people saw us, they saw us in the community, helping and aiding the community. And I think that that little spark to like now, from that one mosque to like now, there's over over 65 mosques in this city, maybe more than that by this time. And I think that I think that the populace itself appreciated, or by law's permission, appreciated the attitude that we held to establish Islam and to bring peace, as opposed to as opposed to um, you know anti. Everything anti. No, we weren't anti. We were pro-Islam, and I think that yeah, through the years, this is now twenty. Uh, this this is now twenty, almost twenty twenty-one. We got mm-hmm. people that's that's politicians, that's Muslims. We've had Eid prayers, Eid feasts in city hall. You know, uh, we have uh, politicians that are that are Muslims right now. You know what I mean? Uh, working, working within the uh, the overall community. You know, so yeah, I think uh, you know through the years, it's definitely been more accepted. And I know, in even the school district on the school district calendar, they had 
eight days that everyone gets off. I remember being um, when I was in the Philadelphia school system as a child, if we wanted to have off for the Eid, we we had to take the day off and our parents had to write us like a explanation note, like my child will be off for this day for their religious holiday. And now we don't even have to do that. Like the kids of this generation don't have to do that because it's on the calendar. Everybody gets off that day. Exactly. exactly. There's definitely been uh, changes and more mainstream. And I, I do appreciate things like that. Okay. Um, so kind of in the same topic, but a, a little different, I'll, I'll ask Imam Hudefa, how have the indigenous Muslim population kind of set the standard for the current practice of Islam in Philadelphia or, or even America? Well, I'll say this. It is a well-known fact throughout the United States, maybe even internationally, that Philadelphia is almost like the Mecca of Islam in the United States. Okay? Whenever there's something that affects the Muslim community, the Muslims around the United States always look to see what is Philadelphia doing. So Philadelphia has been very progressive in setting the standard for Islam. Like Sheikh Saeed said, and he basically said it all, that back even back then in the 60s, they were establishing the prayer. They were keeping the masjid open for the prayer five times a day, which is the most important thing. And then they seen them as opposed to, and I'm, I can appreciate what he said as far as not separating from the Afro-American, black, indigenous community. We were a part of the community back then. We did things and we had jobs. And when we went on the jobs, we, I don't want to use the word demanded our rights, but we asked that our rights be recognized. Okay. Uh, even like, like he said, you see Muslims in politics now. You see, you see Muslim women driving buses. All right. You see Muslim women all over the place. You see, uh, Muslim policemen. You see Muslims are in every aspect. So what that means is, is that some people even had these jobs before they became Muslim or they went on the job as a Muslim. Now, if I can go back, uh, I worked for the Philadelphia School District for 35 years, and I was probably the first person who addressed the Philadelphia School District with, I'm changing my name because I'm Muslim. Okay? Then, in my department, because I wasn't the first Muslim to establish uh, going to Juma. But in my department that I was in, I was the first, I was the first Muslim who said, I need to go to the Friday prayer. Okay. And we made a deal and that was, that was it. We made a deal that I would go to, to prayer wherever I went at and whatever time I took on my lunch period, anything I took over my lunch period time, I would make up at the end of the day on Friday. So if I got off at 3.30 and I took 45 minutes to go to the mosque, then I would stay to 3.45 and everything was kosher. And after that, um, you know, any Muslim that came into my department, when they asked for <laughs> to go to prayer on, on Friday, 
they would always call me. Is this guy Muslim or is she Muslim? Yes, they are. All right. So, you know, uh, we've been accepted pretty well. The other thing is, too, because of what Sheikh Saeed said, I want to refer back to what he said, we were in the community and we were working in the community so much so that there was a position that I had at the uh, Philadelphia School of Performing Arts. And when I went there, the principal heard that I was coming. And one of the things he said was, well, we don't have to worry about nobody stealing because Muslims don't steal and they don't drink and they don't do this. All the bad things that was happening before I got there, she knew that this is going to stop now because we have a Muslim. I was in charge of the facility. So we have a Muslim that's come. So a lot of things that we have problems with, we know it's going to stop. And it did. So, you know, we, we are here. We're here and we're here to stay. This is our country, just like it's everybody else. And uh, we we want to, like like Saeed said, and I have to go back to what he said, we're not anti-anything. We're just pro-Islam. And that's that's the best way to say it. <laughs> that's a, that's a <laughs> you know? pretty good summation. And yeah. thank you for telling the story about the uh, supervisor who knew of the morals and character that mm -hmm. was of a Muslim and mm -hmm. to just know that listen nothing else is going to be stolen all mm -hmm. is pretty well because we we have a Muslim working that right. I think that that really points to the character that was displayed by Muslims mm -hmm. a non-Muslim to to know mm -hmm. and be able to say that openly and with confidence right okay but see the thing is but I want to we want to keep it real that's not to say yes, that we do we want to keep it real see now of course, with newer people coming to Islam, okay, we Muslims have problems too with the criminal justice system. We are human beings, yes. We are human beings, <laughs> and we have a lot of them are young people, and they have problems in the criminal justice system. And what needs to be known is is that I had to do a uh, Imam Asim and Saeed. We used to have to go to the prisons. He did it more than me. I just would go up there and give talks on the holidays. And one of the things that we had to let some of our brothers know that, you know, pro-Islam says that you should be here. Mm -hmm. Islam says you should be here locked up doing what you're doing because this is what Islam says. Islam says that you're wrong and there's punishment for certain things, certain crimes against society. Okay, so be glad you're in America and not in an Islamic society. Very true. Okay. I know we've um we we've used the word indigenous a lot. Um and I know and originally before the the interview started, we mm -hmm. we, we talked a lot about the fact that well one thing that Joe and I thought was really amazing is that you were one of the first or the first Muslim in mm -hmm. Frankfurt um, or the first Muslim in Frankfurt. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and then follow up with what it means to be indigenous? Okay. Well, yes, I was the first Muslim, like Sheikh Saeed said, to bear witness that there's no deity of worship but God and that Muhammad is his messenger. That means taking the Shahada. So I was the first one 
in the Frankfurt neighborhood to do that. Most of the other people that were becoming Muslim, I don't want to say they were becoming Muslim, but kind of turned an ear to what they thought was Islam, was people that they were going into the nation of Islam under the leadership of Elijah Muhammad, which is now under the leadership of Louis Farrakhan. Okay? I didn't go in that direction for obvious reasons. Okay? So, and plus I was around more, even though I knew about the nation of Islam, I knew people that were in it. I grew up with people that were in it. I never went in that direction. But when I met the Muslims that I met, and we started talking Islam and going back and forth and debating, and plus reading more, more even after the autobiography of Malcolm X, it opened my eyes and my heart to Islam, uh, as taught by the Prophet Muhammad. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So that's the direction I went in, even though. I kept relationships with those people that were in the nation of Islam in the Frankfurt neighborhood. Some of them were my relatives. So, of course, I kept. And we never had a problem. You know what I mean? We, we, when we met each other, we greeted each other, and that was it. As a matter of fact, I can remember, if I may, playing wall ball. <laughs> I was playing wall ball with a friend of mine who is now passed his name was D.D. Farr, Alan Foss. We called him D. Everybody had nicknames. So as I remember, and all the guys, the older guys, used to. Our houses were catty corner. He lived on one corner. I lived second house off the other corner. And one of the guys who I really admired, the older guy, you know, he his name was Curtis Williams. And he, I remember him walking across the street one day, and he said to the other guys, not to me. He wasn't talking to me. I was just playing wall ball. And he said, "Assalamu alaikum." And that caught my ear. And I was only maybe about 14, 15 at that time. So I, once I started hearing that, I started saying, oh, this is where that came from. Okay. So, and then going back to Frankfurt after becoming Muslim, when the mother of my children and my children were wearing their headscarves or their kimars, as we call them, it was uh, very strange to the people. Because at that time, you know, the Northeast was predominantly uh, Caucasian. So they never, and plus the black people, they never seen nobody dressed like that. Okay, so that was uh, that was quite an experience during that time. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> Sixty-eight years old just popped in. What, what was that? What was that again? What am I telling you? The question was uh, why. Look, I, I started having flashbacks. <laughs> The question was why you call yourself um, indigenous as opposed to just a black Muslim. Okay, well, I, how I'm going to answer that question is this. Okay, and when you and I discussed it, we really didn't. The reason why I said not a black Muslim because people associate black Muslim with the nation of Islam. Okay, indigenous Muslim. Is a Muslim that's here already, as opposed to a Muslim who comes from another country, which they are our brothers also. Okay, so when we say indigenous Muslims, that's not that's not for our Muslim brothers, Muslim brothers and sisters who come from other countries. That's basically for the people here, so that they know we were Muslims that were born here. Now, again, indigenous means not just 
that here, here, here may be, let's take a person that was born here, but they're not Afro-American, but they were born here in America, but their, uh, may say their ancestry comes from another country. They are indigenous Muslims also. They are the Muslims that here are, that are in America. Just like we have the indigenous people of America, who would be what? The Native Americans. They are the indigenous people of this country. Okay? So we say indigenous Muslims so that we might be identified as those Muslims who were here already. And this is quite, this is becoming a quite important description also because, uh, sometimes, uh, if you, if you take things that happen, I remember some time ago that things would happen and they would always go to a, uh, like something would happen in the Islamic land or this thing would happen or that thing would happen and it would be on the news. So Islam was becoming very popular on the news at one time too because of whatever. Uh, whatever took place, whatever took place in the world, it always had something to do with Muslims and Islam. So what they would do is, is they would always go to uh, a person in a college or a university. We want to talk to Dr. So-and-so and so-and-so on, who is a religious uh, scholar. He's a religious scholar on Islam or he's a scholar of Islamic studies, but he's not a Muslim. Okay. Or they would go to a mosque where indigenous Muslims, they wouldn't interview indigenous Muslims. Afro-American Muslims, they're always interviewing somebody that came from another land. So we started using indigenous to let people know that we're here. We are Muslims. We practice the same Islam that these people that you talk to are about. So we had to use that as identification purposes. But we are Muslims. That's it. We are Muslims. There's no, there's nothing that comes before that title. Or that, yeah, that, that title. All right. It is said in, in the Quran that, you know, I've, I've completed for you your, your religion this day. It is the religion of Abraham and you are Muslims. So there's no such thing as a Sunni Muslim per se, indigenous Muslim, that kind of Muslim, the other kind of Muslim. We are Muslims. Period. Wonderful. Thank you. Sheikh Saeed, do you have a follow up to the question? I can read it again if you'd like. Well, I was I'm, I'm in total agreement. Uh, uh, what what happened what happened in the early years was the same kind of a thing. Uh, what we had to do as converted Muslims, we had to uh, find a way to identify ourselves as Muslim because at the time the prevalent thing was if you are black and you are Muslim, then you must be a black Muslim. You must mm-hmm. be part of the nation of Islam headed by Louis, uh, Elijah Muhammad because you're black, right? So we use another term. We use the term orthodox. And the term orthodox was a way of saying that we are like, the, the at that time, we, we're the Muslims that's in Saudi Arabia. We're real Muslims. You know what I mean? We're, we're the Muslims that face Mecca, that pray five times a day, uh, that don't join partners to a law that are, um, in fact, we even uh, uh, adopted the um, the cultural side on some Islamic lands. That is to say, we would wear 
what were called Wahhibi thobes, the kind of thobes that you see in Saudi Arabia that are actually made in China. Uh, we would, <laughs> we would, <laughs> and we would wear. Is it everything? <laughs> we would wear Pakistani suits, you know, you know, suits to kind of see that you see Pakistanis wear with the baggy pants and the and the and the and the, and the, and the what they call them lungy type of uh, kameesis, you know, all to say that we are other than, other than. You know what I mean? The black Muslim, even though we're black. You know what I mean? But we don't want to prefix ourselves like we're black Muslims as opposed to white Muslims, as opposed to Shiite Muslims, and stuff like that. So we use the word orthodox, you know what I mean, to cover the fact that, you know, the same way that now, in the present time, we're using the word indigenous. You know, indigenous. You know, so that basically that's the case. Plus, I would like, could I, could I add something onto that? Yes, please. Yeah, that you got to remember National Muslim Brotherhood, right? Mm-hmm. They had, uh, when I first came through there, there was a lot of interaction from the Muslim Student Association at the University of Pennsylvania. Okay? So that was and I'm still a early young Muslim. I was only like 22, 23 years old. So I'm starting to see a, a wider variety of Muslims from around the world at the International Muslim Brotherhood. And I used to, then they used to call me, I used to be called by the Muslim Student Association of University of Pennsylvania to come down there sometime and give the uh, Friday prayer talk. And there were a lot of uh, young students from all over the world that were Muslim. So we always had a very close connection with Muslims that came from overseas. As a matter of fact, former Imam Ali Ahmed used to bring uh, some of the Islamic scholars to come and read the Quran for Ramadan, to recite for the Tawari prayer. So we've always had that connection. It's just that we had we felt the need to identify ourselves as the indigenous Muslims. And not to beleaguer it, not to beleaguer yeah. it, but in 19, I think it must have been, might have been 71 or 72. But anyway, in the early 70s, uh, Professor Ismail Faruqi, who's now, yes. Muslim, he was the Dean of Religious Studies at Temple University. Yes. He, the mosque on 19th and Columbia and said to us, listen, any Muslim that wants to come to my class on campus can come free of charge. Just come. Because what he was teaching was the history of Islam. He was giving Islam to the college students, when a lot of them were not Muslims at all. They were just studying it academically, you know. And he came mm-hmm. and told us, if you want to come, come. No, no tuition. Just come. So, so yeah, open that are, invitation to everyone. Yeah, yes. we, we yeah, had I remember that. Yeah, with the uh, with the uh, uh, other than African American Muslims. As a matter of fact, if I'm I'm gonna, uh, you know, this this is a good this is a good good. Saeed just brought up a very very good point because one of the leading Islamic scholars today, Umar Abdullah Farouk or Umar Farouk Abdullah. He is a Caucasian brother. He's a scholar. 
He was a bus driver in Chicago when he became Muslim. He came here under, he came here to study with Dr. Faruqi to do his dissertation in Islamic studies. And while the Islamic Center was open, he actually came to the Islamic Center and he taught his dissertation. He taught, actually he taught from his dissertation that he was making. And he gave, uh, he gave me a copy. Of that, that of his dissertation, he gave. Uh, am I saying it right? This is college people, huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, he gave me a copy. He gave Imam Sali Abdul Rauf a copy, and he gave Munir Abdullah a copy, whose son is actually now teaching us at Mujahideen, and he has a um, master's in the study of Hadith. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. bring back a lot of memories. I, I see you guys. Yeah, are just, it? yeah. <laughs> well, actually, it's the, it's, it's the memories that is history. It's yeah. history, and it gives us a, a line on how did something go like this here? Because I studied Arabic under Dr. Faruqi at Temple University myself. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're we're kind of on the topic. Um, I know it, it, it seems to some people that the indigenous Muslim community and or black Muslim community kind of, um, I'm trying to explain it correctly, in, in a way we're kind of siloed from other communities. What What's the relationship between like the immigrant Muslim community and the indigenous Muslim community? Well, can I answer that shit? Bismillah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Repeat that again. I just want to make sure I got it right. I'm going to give you the right answer to that. Okay. So um, I'm asking about the relationship between mm-hmm. the immigrant Muslim community, those who have come here from other lands and made mm-hmm. um, America their home, mm-hmm. and the indigenous Muslim community. Because many people believe that the indigenous community and or the black Muslims Mm-hmm. And when I say black, I don't mean Nation of Islam. I mean like African American right. Muslims mm-hmm. are like siloed and like they stay to themselves and they don't okay. really socialize with the other groups. Which I know that's not true. But mm-hmm. for our listeners, can you kind of um, explain the relationship between the two communities? Well, I'm going to start off with with a little. I'm going to lighten lighten the mood a little bit. Please okay? do. <laughs> The Philly cheese thing brings everybody together. <laughs> okay? <laughs> okay? And, we all love food. Yes. <laughs> yes. We all love food. So when you put food out on the table, especially the Philly cheese thing, people come around. So what happens is is that you find that Islam, Islam is whatever country you go to, and I found this to be true, Whatever country you go to, Islam is being practiced differently, but the same. Now, whereas sometimes Islam is based on the culture. So if you go to China, you might not see the same cultural things as you're going to see in Pakistan, in Saudi, different places like that. So what happens is, is that everybody has a cultural thing that is allowed. It is allowed. 
Okay, just like Sheikh Saeed said, you see the Pakistani, he's identified by the clothes he wears. The Sudani, he's identified by the clothes he wears. The American is identified by the clothes he wears. Okay, so there's no isolation per se. Because when you have, and I'm going to use Masjid Mujahideen as an example of what goes on throughout the city. People come to Southside Restaurant where uh, cheesesteaks are made. It's a, you know, fast food place. So they come. So what happens is when they come, no matter where they're from, if the event is called for prayer, they come and make, they come in and make the prayer. They come in and make the prayer. And, and it's no problem. It's no big deal. Okay. Um, we've had people, we had a brother from Africa that was, he lived in the neighborhood. He came every morning for prayer. He went home and he brought back some scholars from his country. Just to, They wanted to come to America. He brought them to America. He brought them to the boss. And they sat and gave us a talk. And it was a very good talk. Okay? So there's no, nobody's isolated from nobody per se. It's just a perception because you see people over here, they got a mosque, so they're Egyptian. These people over here, they have a mosque. And they're Pakistani. These people over here have a mosque and they are indigenous Afro-American Muslims. But each, as you travel to each one at the time of prayer, it doesn't mean nothing to anybody. It doesn't really mean anything to anybody. Because at the time, the time of prayer is the time of prayer and everybody prays the same at the same time throughout the city. But there's no isolation. And now like that, We've had good meetings with the various uh, groups or what can I what word can I say? The different ethnic groups of Muslims that are in the city. We always have meetings with them. We talk to them. They come to us, ask us for help. We ask them for help to something, and it, it's all good. It's just that that may be a perception, but it also could be a false perception of the general populace. But it's not like that. Okay, Sheikh Saeed, have anything to add? Well, uh, uh, when, when we talk about culture, we do know that really language is your culture. One of the things that, that keeps you together and keeps your culture together is your language. One of the reasons why they um, uh, separated the uh, African slave because of their language so that they wouldn't have any culture, which is why today the African-American from the, dis from the dysphoria, we're the only ones that don't have a second tongue. We don't have a, 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 a mother tongue. Our mother tongue is King's English, you know. But everybody else, they have a second tongue because they keep their culture. If your grandmother was born in Italy and you were born in Philadelphia, you bet the bottom dollar you know a little bit of Italian. You know what I mean? And, and that's because of the fact that that's your, your keeps you together. And since that's the case, so many times, like who David just mentioned, so many times kutbahs that are given that are given in Arabic, the English-speaking person doesn't really understand the language as such, you know. So many places when they give the kutbah, they have to have it translated so that the people, uh, the, uh, the non-Arab-speaking people can get a sense of what's being said. So that's that's part of it. But like what they're saying, it's not really isolation, separation thing. Not really, really. You know, because sometimes we have amongst us now, we have those African-Americans 
and who David may be one of them that are so affluent in Arabic that they can give a coupon in Arabic, you know what I mean, to an Arabic audience, you know what I mean? So, you know, we're not really like isolated shit out amongst amongst them. And, and you know what, also, just to uh, compliment what you're saying and add to it and confirm that, is that when um, the masjid on Elmwood Avenue first opened up, which is an African masjid, the Africans, that's a large African community over there, and they opened up a masjid, the imam, he would give his khutbah in the first part, he would give it in English. And in the second part, he would say the same thing, but he would say it in Hausa. Okay? So, you see? Yeah. That's, that's how it goes. Okay, thank you for uh, clearing that up because I think it is a misconception that's very widespread. Mm -hmm. It seems like, okay, you know, well, Philadelphia is um, a city of neighborhoods. And so it's a city of different cultures and different people. Mm -hmm. And um, I read somewhere once that we were a melting pot and we're we're not. Um, We're more like a a salad bowl. We have our lettuce over here, tomatoes over there, carrots over there. Yeah. So, um, so people may think that because we're so separated, that mm. we're actually separated, <laughs> and we're we're not. So, uh, in terms of the Muslim community, so thank you for kind of clearing that up. Mm. Um, I I just have one last question for for both of you. Um, not to make the the interview sound like, not to get all doom and gloom, no. but. <laughs> no, no, uh oh. Um, what do you want your What do you want your legacy to be? What What do you want your impact on Philadelphia Muslims to be once you're long gone? And we can start with Imam Hudayfa. Well, I really don't know. Okay, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> I really don't know. Okay, you know, you run into people, a lot of people I run into, they tell me, uh, these are people that are not Muslim that I grew up with. They have stories to tell about me, and I tell stories, but we all, oh, yeah, remember that? Remember this? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and now that I'm an older Muslim, I've been Muslim since I was 22. All right, so I'm 68 now. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, my legacy. First off, uh, all I can say is, just make prayer for me. Pray for me when I'm gone. Okay, that the things that I tried to do, I've I've been active in the Muslim community since 22. Really. Okay, I came in the door, and when I came in the door, I was put to work, and I'm basically doing the same thing I've been doing since then, which is a job of love. I love doing what I do, okay? Uh, So my legacy should be, I would ask the people to pray for me in my grave and ask God to accept my good works and to wipe away my bad works and to allow me to enter into his paradise. Real simple. I mean, thank you. Mm-hmm. Sheikh Saeed? Well, I concur with that uh, because I was shaking my head because what, 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 what is, 
legacy. There's a, there's a tradition that's saying to the Prophet Muhammad that when a man dies, no further rewards are re recorded for him except one of them being some charity that he gave and which the people are still benefiting from. Like the idea of trying to build this mosque that we're trying to build in West Philadelphia on 60th Street. Every time you donate to that particular project, everybody that prays in that masjid, you get a part of the blessing for them from that. Matter of fact, one of the things that we were discussing about that was uh, people buying a brick so that your name is on the brick of the building itself. Another aspect is that the prayers of a good son for his dead father. I've raised seven sons, uh, five sons, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I raised five sons, and I pray that Allah allows them, Allah glorified be he, allows them to be good Muslim men and offer prayers for me when I'm in my grave. And that, for personally, that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds on that final day, and I will be able to by his permission, enter the garden and stay away and be clear of the hellfire. As far as somebody behind me knowing something about me, they already got to say what they're going to say, what they're saying, and I don't know what that is. <laughs> you know what they're saying? That, that guy over there. <laughs> yeah, that guy. That's how we talk. That's part of our vernacular. Oh man, that guy was something, wasn't he? You know what I mean? And that's good. That's good because when, when somebody in our culture says, man, that, like, like, this takes like, oh, that's Saeed, he was something, wasn't he? That means a whole lot. That means a whole lot. And there's nothing wrong with that being said. That's just the vernacular of our culture, the Afro American culture. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I do want to thank you both for being so open and sharing today. And we're, we're called Story Search, and um, thank you for allowing us to delve deep into your stories, stories that may be untold, um, that the world needs to hear because they're super important. And um, I, I do thank you guys for being uh, open and willing to talk to us and share with us. And I seriously can't even tell you how beautiful this has been listening to you. Um, Listen to you both, like Imam Hudefa and Sheikh Saeed, the amount of history and knowledge that you have that needs to be shared and needs to be accessible is just, it's just priceless. And I just want to thank you so much for being here. I very much quite honor welcome. the legacy and just like the life that you bring to this city. So thank, well, thank you very you. much for being with us. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank it you. means a lot. I I mean, I am, um, so Shahada knows me, so we work together, mm -hmm. and Shahada mm -hmm. knows that I am very, I feel very passionate about recording black oral histories mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, because I feel like, and making it accessible through the library, because I feel like that is just something that needs to happen, and this is just a gift. So thank you very, very much. Thank you very much for having us. Too. Of course. Of course. And of course, you know, we have to talk to the gift of Shahada. Shahada. <laughs> First of all, I want to say, too, thank you both for telling me, Shahada, I didn't know what your name meant. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, it's beautiful. So now I just feel like whenever I say your name, I have like um, there's like a blessing, there's a spirituality to your name that's so strong. So now I feel like I just want to like say your name all the time because it's so beautiful. So thank you, Shada. So thank for naming you that. <laughs> so Shada, yes. I have learned so much just from working with you about the Muslim community in Philadelphia. I really wanted to ask you, like, what was it like growing up in the 90s? Can you tell us some of your experiences? Um, yeah, so I would say growing up in the 90s, I definitely, um, I was able to benefit from the framework that um, people like my elders who were on the call, framework that they had established, and they were able to make life easy for us. Um, for us growing up born and raised Muslim because the so one of the differences between myself and them is that they converted uh, to Islam whereas though I was born and raised as a Muslim I mean there comes a time in every person's life that's born and raised Muslim where you do have to make the decision as to whether or not you still want to remain in the religion for you not you know, you have to decide, OK, am I doing this because it's how I was raised or is what will please my parents? Or am I going to continue to do this because, you know, I have faith in a law or faith in God? And so even though I was born and raised Muslim, I did still have to make that decision. But I think that the, the framework that was already placed there for me, um, it, it made my life a lot easier, a lot easier to maneuver. Now, there there were some hardships I'll say like for instance I don't know anyone who grew up in in my generation in in the 80s and 90s who um when when we went to elementary school who who didn't get their their kimar or hijab snatched off mm. like that experience that I went through be you know I I started wearing my hijab pretty young because I wanted to look like my mom and my sisters um, young young women, we don't have to wear our hijab covering until we get to about puberty. But I wore mine much sooner than that because my mom and my sisters and all of the Muslim women around me wore theirs. So I'm like, shoot, I want to wear mine too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember going to school and um, I, I, had, I had not worn it in like kindergarten, but then in like first grade, I wore it. And I remember the same people were in my um, first grade class that were in kindergarten and they're like, what's that thing on your head? And then they rip it off. And mm. I'm like, ah, like, you know, being a five or six year old, you don't know whether to cry, fight back, scream. Right. Um, I think ultimately I just went to cry somewhere and I talked to my mom later on and she was like, just put it back on. And I'm like, oh yeah, true. <laughs> you know, I could have did that. But, uh, but I think it's definitely an experience. Um, but I, but I feel like our lives have been made somewhat easier. I think every generation with all of the kind of struggles and hardships that we go through, we make it easier for the next generation below us. Like, for instance, now, like, so I was getting my hijab ripped off in, in the early nineties when I was in elementary school mm-hmm. and in Philadelphia, you, it's hijabs everywhere. And it's Muslims everywhere in their full Muslim regalia. Like you, you just you see Muslims openly, openly wearing Islamic clothing 
And I have friends from all over the world, and they say when they come to Philly, and they're like, wow, y'all are just free to wear your Islamic clothes. It's Muslims everywhere. It's Islamic stores everywhere. They're like, y'all got it made. This is like a very Muslim-friendly city. And a lot of people, they they appreciate the fact that um, Islam has become part of the culture and fabric of Philadelphia. Mm. Yeah, because I admit the same thing, too. Like, moving, I first moved here after college. That was, like, in 2002. And um, I am, like, uh, Sheikh Saeed. I grew up in the military. My dad was Air Force, so I grew up being around everyone all the time. I was exposed to lots of different ethnicities and lots of different faiths. And it was just beautiful. One of my favorite things moving to Philadelphia is that I felt very much like all my life experiences came together. You know, like mm-hmm. seeing so many people wearing um, items of clothing that depict that depict their faith was just really, I think, is a key part of what makes Philly Philly. Very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, Shahada, you kind of mentioned or talked about that a little bit, um, my first question, but do you find people are more accepting of you now than when you were younger? Um, I, I would say now people are more accepting because, um, well, in a way, people are more accepting because it's it's kind of in your face. I mean, in Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley, we have between 250,000 and 300,000 Muslims just, just right here. Mm-hmm. And, and that was according to our last census. So we just did the census again. I am... I'm excited to like see how many more um, Muslim identifying people have wrote down on the census. Yes, I, I'm a Muslim. So it, it's very much that it, it's open and uh, we're very seen and we have the Islamic holidays on the calendar. And honestly, in Philadelphia, I, I would say for sure in the black community, you can't meet a person that like every single person that you meet, they know a Muslim. They either mm-hmm. have a Muslim, a cousin who's Muslim, just someone. So there, there isn't really anyone in the Philadelphia black community that does not know a Muslim or who does not know something about Islam. Whether they um, accept it or not, they, they still know about Muslims because we're, we're here and we're visible and we're, we're a part of Philadelphia fabric just like everyone else. But I would say generally we're more accepted, but there are a few um, outerlying cases. Like I know, for instance, a few weeks ago, I was in the supermarket and, um, you know, I was dressed as a Muslim as as usual. But I I wouldn't say that I was I wasn't dressed in a way that was more um, like strict or orthodox. Like I know in Philadelphia, we have several Muslim women who wear the full full hijab, full niqab, face covering, and full overgarment. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't dressed like that, but I did have my face covered because, I mean, well, right now we have COVID restrictions. I mm-hmm. had on, like, a mask. and um, But I did have on my hijab and, like, my long clothing. And a woman decided, uh, an older woman, she decided that she was going to throw something on me and call it the, the blood of Jesus. Oh. And luckily, it, it only hit my shoes. And, uh, you know, shoes are something that I can always wipe off and change. But that just goes to show me that even though we are very much more accepted in the city these days, 
not by everyone, (laughs) but there are always going to be cases where people don't accept you, but you just have to continue uh, praising God and being a good human being and, and you, and you move on and you've Mm -hmm. got to love everyone, even if they don't love you, because that, that is our way. That is the way of Muslims. We're respectful and we love everyone. Mm. Right. Can I, can I add on to that? Of course. Yes. Yes. Okay, there was a there was an incident. And I want to go back into Islamic history. Okay, because a lot of times when people hear that, I'm glad she brought that up because, um, you know, a lot of men, a lot of people wouldn't take that like that the way she did it. Like she said, I can always change my shoes. Okay, uh, a lot of people might have went in another route. Okay, but. Actually, what she did was exhibit patience and perseverance. And in cases like that, during the time of the Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of God be upon him, things took like things happened like that to him, and he would always be patient. And then you would find that the people would come back and become Muslim because of his behavior. See, so good character and good behavior is always a plus. For the Muslim, um, there was an incident where the Prophet, at the time of when he was establishing Islam in the city of Medina, he told some of his companions to go out and, you know, uh, secure the perimeter, see what's going on out there. So they caught a man and they brought the man back to the Prophet. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And the Prophet asked them, Do you know who you have here? They said, No. He said, you have Thumama ibn Uthair. And Thumama ibn Uthair was a sworn enemy of the Prophet. And he had killed in wars a lot of companions of the Prophet. He killed a lot of Muslims. And he swore that he would continue killing Muslims until he got to the Prophet Muhammad himself to kill him. He was an avowed enemy. And one of the things, so the Prophet said, tie him up in the masjid and just leave him there. Make sure you feed him. So they fed him for every meal, and he sat in the masjid. And he came into the masjid the first day. He said, oh, Thumama, what am I going to do with you? So Thumama said to him, he said, well, I have killed plenty of your companions. So if you kill me, as far as I'm concerned, we're even. Or you can let me go, <laughs> okay? And, you know, and we can go back to war. So the prophet didn't say nothing. He walked away. He came back the next day. Oh, Mama, what am I going to do with you? He said the same thing. You know, I killed plenty of your companions and I did this against you. I'm on a bad enemy of you. So you can kill me or you can let me go. The third day he came and he told the companions to let Mama go. And they didn't want to let him go. And they let him go anyway. They had to. The prophet commanded, let him go. Leave him be. Let him go on about his business. He's free to go. And he went outside of Mecca, and by him watching the Muslims for three days, he made ablution and came back to the prophet, and he said that there was no man dearer to me on that day other than Muhammad. So when we act, carry ourselves a certain way, the way Shahada did, that is also a way of letting people know who the Muslims actually are. That's a small little story I wanted to throw in there. That when Shahada started telling that story, 
that popped into my head. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, this has been a wonderful and enlightening conversation. And I hope that this conversation, I I hope that's heard by quite a few people in Philadelphia. We're going to do our best to share and get this out because I feel like um, it's just hearing people's personal stories and hearing just the Mm -hmm. reality helps get rid of a lot of those misconceptions that Mm -hmm. Shahada and all of you were talking about earlier. And I think that this has just been such an amazing treasure oral history of your community in Philadelphia. So thanks. Thank I cannot tell you how much I am honored and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. And you're welcome. (laughs) All right, Joe, are you ready to carry us out? I think so. Um, It's thank you once again. I'll repeat what Andrea said. It's uh it's just uh, an education worth a lot of gold, just listening to all of you and uh, what you have to say and share with us. And uh, what strikes me as amazing, when you look at our collection of Korans and other Islamic manuscripts in our collection, there's a lot that we're going to be learning about them when the academics start going through those books and those manuscripts. But one of the things that these holy books have accomplished is that it gives us a platform to have these conversations with each other, to learn from one another. So even if you've never read a a word that's written in these books, it just gives us that that opportunity, opportunity to do what we're doing now. So I thank all of you um, for participating and um, I want everyone to know that um, our collections are, are open to everybody, especially in the black Islamic community, that you don't have to be a professor. You don't have to be someone who's super educated with a Ph.D. working on their dissertation or however you pronounce it to come and read what we have, to to flip through the pages, to sit down, that you can just come by. We're there for you. The people who gave us these books gave it to us, to the free library so that we can share it with Philadelphians. So I want to use this as another starting point to continue uh, our relationship together. Love.